we continue with part two of the opinion of the court in Ramos v. Louisiana. Part four, section A. If Louisiana's path to an affirmance is a difficult one, the dissent is trickier still. The dissent doesn't dispute that the Sixth Amendment protects the right to a unanimous jury verdict, or that the Fourteenth Amendment extends this right to state court trials. But, it insists, we must affirm Mr. Ramos's conviction anyway. Why? Because the doctrine of stare decisis supposedly commands it. There are two independent reasons why that answer falls short. In the first place, and as we've seen, not even Louisiana tries to suggest that Apodaca supplies a governing precedent. Remember, Justice Powell agreed that the Sixth Amendment requires a unanimous verdict to convict, so he would have had no objection to that aspect of our holding today. Justice Powell reached a different result only by relying on a dual-track theory of incorporation that a majority of the court had already rejected and continues to reject. And to accept that reasoning as precedential, we would have to embrace a new and dubious proposition, that a single justice writing only for himself has the authority to bind this court to propositions it has already rejected. This is not the rule, and for good reason. It would do more to destabilize than to honor precedent. To see how, consider a hypothetical. Suppose we face a question of first impression under the Fourth Amendment, whether a state must obtain a warrant before reading a citizen's email in the hands of an internet provider and using that email as evidence in a criminal trial. Imagine this question splits the court, with four justices finding the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant and four justices finding no such requirement. The Ninth Justice agrees that the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant but takes an idiosyncratic view of the consequences of violating that right. In her view, the exclusionary rule has gone too far and should only apply when the defendant is prosecuted for a felony. Because the case before her happens to involve only a misdemeanor, she provides the ninth vote to affirm a conviction based on evidence secured by a warrantless search. Of course, this court has long-standing precedent requiring the suppression of all evidence obtained in unconstitutional searches and seizures. But like Justice Powell, our hypothetical Ninth Justice sticks to her view and expressly rejects this court's precedent. Like Justice Powell, this justice's vote would be essential to the judgment. So if, as the dissent suggests, that is enough to displace precedent, would MAPS, exclusionary rule, now be limited to felony prosecutions? Admittedly, this example comes from our imagination, 
It has to, because no case has before suggested that a single justice may overrule precedent. But if the court were to embrace the dissent's view of stare decisis, it would not stay imaginary for long. Every occasion on which the court is evenly split would present an opportunity for single justices to overturn precedent to bind future majorities. Rather than advancing the goals of predictability and reliance lying behind the doctrine of stare decisis, such an approach would impair them. The dissent contends that in saying this much, we risk defying Marx v. United States. According to Marx, when a fragmented court decides a case and no single rationale explaining the result enjoys the assent of five justices, the holding of the court may be viewed as that position taken by those members who concurred in the judgments on the narrowest grounds. But notice that the dissent never actually gets around to telling us which opinion in Apodaca it considers to be the narrowest and controlling one under Marx, or why. So while the dissent worries that we defy a Marx precedent, it is oddly coy about where exactly that precedent might be found. The parties recognize what the dissent does not. Marx has nothing to do with this case. Unlike a Marx dispute, where the litigants duel over which opinion represents the narrowest and controlling one, the parties before us accept that Apodaca yielded no controlling opinion at all. In particular, both sides admit that Justice Powell's opinion cannot bind us, precisely because he relied on a dual-track rule of incorporation that an unbroken line of majority opinions before and after Apodaca has rejected. Still, the dissent presses the issue, suggesting that a single justice's opinion can overrule prior precedents under the logic of Marx. But as the dissent itself implicitly acknowledges, Marx never sought to offer or defend such a rule. And as we have seen, too, a rule like that would do more to harm than advance stare decisis. The dissent's backup argument fares no better. In the end, even the dissent is forced to concede that Justice Powell's reasoning in Apodaca lacks controlling force. So far, so good. But then the dissent suggests Apodaca somehow still manages to supply a controlling precedent as to its result. Look closely, though. The dissent's account of Apodaca's result looks suspiciously like the reasoning of Justice Powell's opinion. In Apodaca, this means that when, one, a defendant is convicted in state court, two, at least ten of the twelve jurors vote to convict, and three, the defendant argues that the conviction violates the Constitution because the vote was not unanimous. The challenge fails. 
where does the convenient state court qualification come from? Neither the Apodaca plurality nor the dissent included any limitation like that. Their opinions turned on the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. What the dissent characterizes as Apodaca's result turns out to be nothing more than Justice Powell's reasoning about dual-track incorporation, dressed up to look like a logical proof. All of this does no more than highlight an old truth. It is usually a judicial decision's reasoning. It's ratio decidendi that allows it to have life and effect in the disposition of future cases, as this court has repeatedly explained in the context of summary affirmances, unexplicated decisions may settle the issues for the parties, but they are not to be read as a renunciation by this court of doctrines previously announced in our opinions. Much the same may be said here. Apodaca's judgment line resolved that case for the parties in that case. It is binding in that sense. But stripped away from any reasoning, its judgment alone cannot be read to repudiate this court's repeated pre-existing teachings on the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments. Section B. There's another obstacle the dissent must overcome. Even if we accepted the premise that Apodaca established a precedent, no one on the court today is prepared to say it was rightly decided. And stare decisis isn't supposed to be the art of methodically ignoring what everyone knows to be true. Of course, the precedents of this court warrant our deep respect as embodying the considered views of those who have come before. But stare decisis has never been treated as an inexorable command, and the doctrine is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution because a mistaken judicial interpretation of that supreme law is often practically impossible to correct through other means. To balance these considerations, when it revisits a precedent this court has traditionally considered the quality of the decision's reasoning, its consistency with related decisions, legal developments since the decision, and reliance on the decision. In this case, each factor points in the same direction. Start with the quality of the reasoning. Whether we look to the plurality opinion or Justice Powell's separate concurrence, Apodaca was gravely mistaken. Again, no member of the court today defends either as rightly decided. Without repeating what we've already explained in detail, it's just an implacable fact that the plurality spent almost no time grappling with the historical meaning of the Sixth Amendment's jury trial right. This court's long-repeated statements that it demands unanimity or the racist origins of Louisiana's and Oregon's laws. 
Instead, the plurality subjected the Constitution's jury trial right to an incomplete functionalist analysis of its own creation for which it spared one paragraph. And, of course, five justices expressly rejected the plurality's conclusion that the Sixth Amendment does not require unanimity. Meanwhile, Justice Powell refused to follow this court's incorporation precedents. Nine justices, including Justice Powell, recognized this for what it was. Eight called it an error. Looking to Apodaca's consistency with related decisions and recent legal developments compounds the reasons for concern. Apodaca sits uneasily with 120 years of preceding case law. Given how unmoored it was from the start, it might seem unlikely that later developments could have done more to undermine the decision. Yet they have. While Justice Powell's dual-track theory of incorporation was already foreclosed in 1972, some at that time still argued that it might have a role to play outside the realm of criminal procedure. Still then, the court has held otherwise. Until recently, dual-track incorporation attracted at least a measure of support in dissent. But this court has now roundly rejected it. Nor has the plurality's rejection of the Sixth Amendment's historical unanimity requirement aged more gracefully. As we've seen, in the years since Apodaca, this court has spoken inconsistently about its meaning, but nonetheless referred to the traditional unanimity requirement on at least eight occasions. In light of all this, calling Apodaca an outlier would be perhaps too suggestive of the possibility of company. When it comes to reliance interests, it's notable that neither Louisiana nor Oregon claims anything like the prospective economic, regulatory, or social disruption litigants seeking to preserve precedent usually invoke. No one, it seems, has signed a contract, entered a marriage, purchased a home, or opened a business based on the expectation that, should a crime occur, at least the accused may be sent away by a 10-2 verdict. Nor does anyone suggest that non-unanimous verdicts have become part of our national culture. It would be quite surprising if they had, given that non-unanimous verdicts are insufficient to convict in 48 states and federal courts. Instead, the only reliance interests that might be asserted here fall into two categories. The first concerns the fact that Louisiana and Oregon may need to retry defendants convicted of felonies by non-unanimous verdicts whose cases are still pending on direct appeal. The dissent claims that this fact supplies the winning argument for retaining Apodaca because it has generated enormous reliance interests. And overturning the case would provoke a crushing tsunami of follow-on litigation. 
The overstatement may be forgiven as intended for dramatic effect. But prior convictions in only two states are potentially affected by our judgment. Those states credibly claim that the number of non-unanimous felony convictions still on direct appeal are somewhere in the hundreds, and retrying or plea bargaining these cases will surely impose a cost. But new rules of criminal procedures usually do, often affecting significant numbers of pending cases across the whole country. For example, after Booker v. United States held that the federal sentencing guidelines must be advisory rather than mandatory, this court vacated and remanded nearly 800 decisions to the courts of appeals. Similar consequences likely followed when Crawford v. Washington overturned prior interpretations of the Confrontation Clause, or Arizona v. Gantt changed the law for searches incident to arrests. Our decision here promises to cause less, and certainly nothing before us supports the dissent's surmise that it will cause wildly more disruption than these other decisions. The second and related reliance interest the dissent seizes upon involves the interest Louisiana and Oregon have in the security of their final criminal judgments. In light of our decision today, the dissent worries that defendants whose appeals are already complete might seek to challenge their non-unanimous convictions through collateral, i.e. habeas, review. But again, the worries outstrip the facts. Under Teague v. Lane, newly recognized rules of criminal procedure do not normally apply in collateral review. True, Teague left open the possibility of an exception for watershed rules, implicating the fundamental fairness and accuracy of the trial. But as this language suggests, Teague's test is a demanding one, so much so that this court has yet to announce a new rule of criminal procedure capable of meeting it, and the test is demanding by design, expressly calibrated to address the reliance interests states have in the finality of their criminal judgments. Nor is the Teague question even before us. Whether the right to jury unanimity applies to cases on collateral review is a question for a future case where the parties will have a chance to brief the issue and we will benefit from their adversarial presentation. That litigation is sure to come and will rightly take into account the state's interests in the finality of their criminal convictions. In this way, Teague frees us to say, what we know to be true about the rights of the accused under our Constitution today, while leaving questions about the reliance interests states possess in their final judgments for later proceedings crafted to account for them. It would hardly make sense to ignore that two-step process and count the state's reliance interests in final judgments, both here and again there.
Certainly, the dissent cites no authority for such double counting. Instead, the dissent suggests that the feeble reliance interests it identifies should get a boost because the right to a unanimous jury trial has little practical importance going forward. In the dissent's telling, Louisiana has abolished non-unanimous verdicts, and Oregon seemed on the verge of doing the same until the court intervened. But as the dissent itself concedes, a ruling for Louisiana would invite other states to relax their own unanimity requirements. In fact, 14 jurisdictions have already told us that they would value the right to experiment with non-unanimous juries. Besides, Louisiana's law bears only prospective effect, so the state continues to allow non-unanimous verdicts for crimes committed before 2019. And while the dissent speculates that our grant of certiorari contributed to the failure of legal reform efforts in Oregon, its citation does not support its surmise. No doubt, too, those who risk being subjected to non-unanimous juries in Louisiana and Oregon today and elsewhere tomorrow would dispute the dissent's suggestion that their Sixth Amendment rights are of little practical importance. That point suggests another. In its valiant search for reliance interests, the dissent somehow misses maybe the most important one. The reliance interests of the American people. Taken at its word, the dissent would have us discard a Sixth Amendment right in perpetuity rather than ask two states to retry a slice of their prior criminal cases. Whether that slice turns out to be large or small, it cannot outweigh the interest we all share in the preservation of our constitutionally promised liberties. Indeed, the dissent can cite no case in which the one-time need to retry defendants has ever been sufficient to inter a constitutional right forever. In the final accounting, the dissent's stare decisis arguments round to zero. We have an admittedly mistaken decision on a constitutional issue, an outlier on the day it was decided, one that's become lonelier with time. In arguing otherwise, the dissent must elide the reliance the American people place on their constitutionally protected liberties, overplay the competing interests of two states, count some of those interests twice, and make no small amount of new precedent all its own. Part 5 On what ground would anyone have us leave Mr. Ramos in prison for the rest of his life? Not a single member of this court is prepared to say Louisiana secured his conviction constitutionally under the Sixth Amendment. No one before us suggests that the error was harmless. 
Louisiana does not claim precedent commands and affirmance. In the end, the best anyone can seem to muster against Mr. Ramos is that if we dared to admit, in his case, what we all know to be true about the Sixth Amendment, we might have to say the same in some others. But where is the justice in that? Every justice must learn to live with the fact he or she will make some mistakes. It comes with the territory. But it is something else entirely to perpetuate something we all know to be wrong, only because we fear the consequences of being right. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.